This morning, Jeff is going to preach in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. If you have your Bibles, uh, please follow along with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Wade. Good morning. As Wade mentioned, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, so I encourage you to take a Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. As you're doing so, uh, just let you know, uh, this week has marked a, uh, a major milestone in, uh, in my life. Uh, this past Monday uh, marked my one-year anniversary here at Parkway, uh, but even more significantly, this past Thursday was the five-year anniversary of the first time I ever tried sushi. It's quite, quite an accomplishment. You're welcome to clap for that or something. I don't know if you get me a gift card uh, for a sushi restaurant or something like that. I have been to uh, Japan twice in my life. And, uh, and so the first time I went in 2010 uh, with uh, some members of my family, my mom, my dad, uh, my brother, and uh, nephew. And uh, we went for this reason because my dad, some of you don't know this, some of you do. My dad is half Japanese. Uh, he was actually born in Japan, and, uh, and so uh, we had a friend who was living in Tokyo and had a uh, very large apartment there. He was there for business, very, very large apartment for Japanese standards, and so he said, why don't you guys come over? He knew that we had kind of always wanted to go there since my dad was born there, and uh, we had an opportunity to go and see the orphanage uh, that my dad was adopted from. And so uh, we went over there uh, in 2010. Uh, with family and kind of toured the country, and, uh, uh, and it was a whole lot of fun. And towards uh, the uh, end of the trip, we got to see the orphanage. But while we were there, we ate at some sort of classic Japanese restaurants like Bubba Gump and uh, uh, Hard Rock Cafe and McDonald's, you know, just these sort of upper echelon of uh, when you think Japanese cuisine. Uh, my second trip uh, in, uh, in 2012, my second trip to Japan was a little bit different. And uh, so that was actually a, uh, not just a vacation, it was a, a mission trip that I went on uh, with a couple of guys who ended up moving over to Japan. They were thinking about uh, moving to Japan and being full-time uh, missionaries over there. And, uh, and so one of the guys that I went with, uh, he was married to a woman from uh, Japan. And, uh, and so... Uh, they kind of felt like this was the, where the Lord was calling them to give their life, uh, and, uh, and so we went over there, and I basically just went to ask questions and, uh, and to pray and to, and to encourage those guys as they kind of processed where the Lord was leading uh, them in their life and ministry and so forth. But this buddy of mine, uh, being uh, somewhat more immersed into Japanese culture because he had married uh, a, uh, a, a girl from Japan, 
uh, he took me to uh, places that are a little less, less Japanese than Hard Rock Cafe and so forth. And so I got to try ramen, not just that stuff that you buy at Kroger for 20 cents a packet, but actually like good, authentic Japanese ramen. I got to try gyoza, which are kind of similar to uh, the Chinese uh, uh, pot stickers or dumplings or something like that. Uh, I tried a thing called uh, yakitori, uh, which is basically chicken on a stick, uh, which sounds delicious, and it is when you have the chicken breast, but then they bring the rest of the chicken, and they put that on a stick as well. And so uh, chicken head and chicken feet, and uh, the worst part was uh, chicken heart, and so I uh, am given the chicken heart as a sign of great honor and esteem and so forth. I have a very weak stomach, though. And so I tried the chicken heart because I don't want to offend my host, who is my uh, friend's father-in-law, and so he's paying for this dinner. He's the one who ordered it. He's the one who gave me the chicken heart. I take one bite into it, and I realize this is not going down. And uh, and so, uh, so what I did is what anybody would do in this situation. I just held it in my mouth until no one was looking, and then I spit it into a napkin and threw it under the table. Probably not the best thing to do, but I didn't know what else to do in order to not offend my, uh, my host. Well, uh, later on in the trip, we were again with uh, my friend's father-in-law, and he was going to take us to go see Mount Fuji. And, uh, and so uh, along the way, uh, I got car sick. I tend to get car sick fairly easily. Uh, interesting fact about our staff, three of our four staff members uh, get extremely car sick. So it's always a, a fight to see who's going to get uh, the front seat, who's going to get the middle, and who's going to get sick. And, uh, and so anyway, I end up getting uh, really car sick, and, uh, and so we go... Uh, we're there, we can see Mount Fuji in the distance, and uh, we're at this little restaurant, and, uh, and so I don't order anything, because I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling uh, terrible, and, uh, and so my uh, friend's father-in-law, he decides the best thing for me is to get some food in my stomach, and so unbeknownst to me, because he does this whole process in Japanese, he orders me food, but he actually ordered me uh, sushi, which I had avoided my entire life. Up to that point, I was like uh, 34 or something like that. And so my entire life I'd avoided it. And this is not the primary time that I would think is the best time to try a new food because I do have a really weak stomach and uh, as evidenced by the uh, yakitori sort of incident. And, uh, and so uh, I, I'm trying to think, is there any way I can possibly get out of eating this food? This is Japan. This is a very shame, honor culture. Again, he's taking the initiative. He's ordering this for me. He's paying. He's driving us out to Mount Fuji. I realize there's no way out whatsoever. And so I, uh, I managed to uh, take the first bite, fully expecting I'm going to have to instantly run uh, to the bathroom. And I found I loved it. Like, I absolutely loved it. And, uh, and to this day, sushi is now one of my favorite foods. There is nothing that I enjoy more than really, really good sushi. There's also nothing that I enjoy less than really, really bad sushi. As we talk about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10 this morning, I think a lot of us feel about this topic, the topic that we're going to be talking about this morning, the way that I felt about sushi. We're talking about predestination. We're talking about election. We're talking about God's sovereignty as it relates to his choice of the elect, his choice of people. And I think a lot of us relate to that concept. We think of that concept the way that I thought about sushi. Either we've been so disgusted by the idea of it, we've found it so distasteful that we've always avoided it. Or maybe we've tasted it, but we've had a really bad portion of it. 
And so we've avoided it. What I want to do this morning, if the Lord would be so gracious to us, is to not only give us the ability to taste of this, but perhaps also to find not only is it nutritious, but it's delicious. It's beautiful. It's good. It's in God's Word. And by definition, that means it's lovely and beautiful and true and right and all those sorts of things. But I can't do that on my own. We need the Lord's help. So let's pray for him to move among us. I'd ask first that you would pray for yourself. Even as I mention words like predestination or election, maybe you recognize this is going to be a very hard sermon for you. Maybe you have always found this subject to be unpleasant, distasteful. Or maybe you have tasted of it before, but it was done in a way that was really callous and cruel and unkind. So that's the Lord would just give you an opportunity to hear. And then pray that for those around you, whether you know them or not. Ask the Lord would move upon this church body, our members, our visitors, attendees, rally us around his truth this morning. And then pray for me, that the Lord would give me clarity of speech and faithfulness to his text. So Father, we do ask that you would move among us this morning that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we see poured out for us in this text. We ask these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Verse three of Ephesians chapter one We'll read through uh, uh, kind of the third part, the third section of verse 4. Paul begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So here we are in week two of our sort of six-month exploration of the book of Ephesians, And we begin with this super long blessing. In fact, verses 3 all the way down through 14 are this introductory blessing that uh, that Paul is going to give. We're going to break it up and take the second half of it uh, next week. But this entire section, this entire section, verses 3 through 14 in Greek, is intended to be read together. It's intended as one long blessing. Uh, the, The word there is related to our word eulogy, a good word that is said about God in light of what he has done for us. And it's one sentence in the Greek. In our uh, our translations, we put multiple sentences in there. But in Greek, it's just one sentence. It's coordinating uh, clause upon another, upon another, upon another, upon another. It's 202 words in one sentence in the original language that Paul is going to say a whole lot of super deep stuff really, really quickly kind of like talking to Zach a little bit, say a whole lot of stuff really, really quickly that's super, super deep. That's what Paul's doing here in verses 3 through 10. And the reason that Paul wants to begin with this blessing is the fact that God has blessed us. We bless God because he has blessed us. We praise God. We exalt God. We bless God because he has poured down his blessings upon us. If we follow the flow of the passage We'll see a number of examples of how God's grace is manifest to us. In other words, how God has 
blessed us. In verse four, God's blessing is manifest in his choosing of a people. Verse five, in his predestining work unto adoption. Verse seven, in his redeeming of a people. In verse nine, of his making known or revealing a mystery to his people. So choosing, predestining, adopting, redeeming, revealing, all of these different ways that God's grace is manifest to us, all of these different ways that he lavishes blessing upon his people. So we begin with the idea of choosing. Paul writes, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now this little phrase, this little clause there is actually saturated with meaning. It's saturated, just dripping with imagery, with meaning, with intent, and so forth. In fact, nearly all of the various sort of boundaries of what it is that we are to believe about this work of predestination, this work of election, this work of choosing, nearly all of those boundaries are packed within this one particular verse. Let's look at it there. In this verse, in this little section, we find the who, the subject of the verb. Who is it that does this? It's God. God is the one who does this. And what does he do? What's the what? He chose. As we'll see, this is the idea of predestination and election. We'll flesh that out in just a moment. What does God do? He chooses. And whom does he choose? It says us, he chose us, the elect. He chooses Christians, saints, all who love and trust Jesus. That's who God chooses here. When does he choose them? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, that's when he chooses. If we were in Romans 9, we would read something similar, that God chooses Jacob and not Esau. Before they were born, before, before they had done anything, either good or bad, God chooses. When does he choose? He chooses before the foundation of the world. Where? So we have the who, we have the what, we have the when. What about the where? He chooses us in Christ. Christ is, this is a phrase that I got from Jerry, that Christ is the environment of our election. We spent a little bit of time over the past couple of weeks kind of to flesh out this idea of union with Christ, that we have been grafted into Christ, that we are united to Christ, that Christ is, if you will, the location where all of God's blessings are flowing into. He is the fountain and all of God's blessings flow through him. That we are in Christ is the idea that we are standing in that waterfall of God's blessing. That all of God's grace, all of God's blessing is directed unto Christ and thus overflows to all who are in Christ. That's the where of our election in Christ. And why are we elected? We are elected unto an end that we should be holy and blameless. There's a purpose to our predestination that we should be holy and blameless. That's the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of election in summary. And we'll see that fleshed out in the following verse. So let's look at that in uh, starting in 4D and then going all the way through verse 6. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here's the reality. Everyone 
that you interact with that is a Christian. Everyone that you interact with who reads the Bible, everyone believes in predestination. It's right there. You can't deny the word. The word is right there. It says he predestined us. Everybody believes that. But what we mean by the word can be radically different depending upon our various presuppositions, as we talked about in theological equipping, and our various understandings of Scripture. Everybody believes in predestination, but we might have a very different meaning from what Paul means as we think about that word. Let me give an example of this. A couple of months ago, uh, the staff uh, and our families all went out to uh, dinner, and because of my deep love for sushi, I chose a Japanese place uh, for us uh, to go. Uh, Carl's uh, wife and, uh, and kids had never tried uh, sushi before and really weren't all that keen on the idea before we went to this place, but that was the main thing they served, and so uh, they were uh, champs and kind of jumped in with uh, both feet and really tried just about everything uh, that we put before them. And uh, Taylor, who is uh, Carl's 15-year-old son, he loved it. He just really loved the entire experience. I mean, he was trying absolutely everything that we would put in front of him. And towards the end of the meal, he asked me, he said, Jeff, is it okay if I order one more round of sushi? And I said, sure, what do you want? He said, I want more of that salmon. Uh, And I said, great, that's great. Just ask the waiter. And he says, how do I do it? How do I do it? I said, just tell him you want salmon sushi. (laughs) And uh, and he said, okay, but, but like there's different types and so forth. So I said, okay, you want nigiri. That's the fish on the little bed of rice. And uh, so I said, just tell them sushi nigiri and you'll get what you want. But Taylor decided, you know what? I really want to learn the Japanese for this. So he goes to the menu. He looks down there, sees the word salmon, sees the little Japanese uh, word. It's in Japanese characters. And then there's the, the kind of English translation of that pronunciation of it. And so he tells the waiter, I want ikura. All right. Now, I don't expect you to know what ikura is. It is salmon, but it's salmon roe. You know what the word roe means? Eggs. It's salmon eggs. That's what he had accidentally ordered. Uh, Thankfully, we were able to catch it uh, before uh, too much damage was done. But here's what the waiter said. The waiter said, you know what? I'm going to go bring you some sake, uh, just kind of like the same pronunciation as the rice wine. That is what uh, uh, salmon sushi is. But he said, I'm also going to bring you the akura, and you have to try it. And, uh, And so I made a deal with Taylor. I said, if you'll try it, I'll try it. All right? And, uh, and we tried it, and we didn't like it, right? I love sushi. I don't love raw fish eggs. Uh, Zach said it best. He said they are like gushers with, uh, with kind of fish juice inside. <laughs> and that's exactly what they are like. And uh, so it was not a very pleasant experience. Here's the point. Uh, uh, Taylor had a particular concept in his mind, and he expressed a word to... Uh, to kind of articulate or to communicate that concept, but it was a totally different concept that he had intended. In the same way, we can use this word predestination, but mean something by it totally different from what Paul means. And so, let me give you two examples of how most people probably naturally think of this word, predestination, all right? Right now, we're in the middle of the uh, NBA playoffs. I don't know if you're an NBA fan or not, but right now, we're kind of in the middle of the playoffs, kind of just ending the first round, going into uh, the, the, the second round of the playoffs. And many people think of predestination kind of like the NBA. 
and the NBA Finals. See, you have this commissioner, you have the NBA commissioner, and you have his team, and they have determined that there is going to be an NBA Finals. Right? They've determined that there's going to be an NBA Finals. And furthermore, they have determined that the winner of the Eastern Conference and the winner of the Western Conference are going to meet in the NBA Finals. And they've determined that whoever wins that game is then the NBA champion. But, unless you're like a conspiracy theorist or something like that, you don't actually believe that they determine who actually wins. Right? So they determine... Who, that there's going to be a winner. They determine the system, the process, but they don't actually determine who is going to play in the games and who is going to win the games and so forth. Again, unless you are some sort of conspiracy theorist. That's how most people, though, kind of think of this idea of predestination, that God kind of sets up a process. He predestines the process, but not the actual people who are the beneficiaries of that process. The problem with that is when the Bible talks about this, it doesn't talk about God just predestining the process. It talks about him predestining people. What did we just read? That God chose us. That God predestined us. People. Not just a process, but particular people. Or some people think about predestination as God simply kind of looking into the future. God looks into the future because he's able to see future events. And so he looks into the future and he looks and he sees and he says, you know what? I'm going to predestine this person because they will choose me. I choose them because they're going to choose me. That's how a number of people think about uh, or think of this concept of predestination, that God simply is, is basing his choice on our future actions. Not only does that go against the whole idea of Romans 9, I just talked about it a minute ago, uh, that before they were born or had done anything good or bad, but it's also not the way the Bible talks about this. The problem with this sort of idea that God looks into the future and he predestines those who would choose him is that if God looks into the future... What does he see of you? He sees you would never choose him. He sees depravity. He sees sin. He sees an unwillingness. He sees rejection. The problem with this is that on our own, none would choose him. That's the language of Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. We'll see this come up a number of times, even in the book of Ephesians. We get to chapter 2, and we'll see we're dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. What did dead people do? Nothing. That's the point. They just lay there in their deadness. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, we'll see that our hearts are darkened, our minds are depraved. We'll come back to this idea that if God simply looks in the future and says, I'll choose whoever would choose me, he won't choose anybody because no one would freely, willingly choose God on our own because we've been so mired by the effects of the fall. We've been so defaced by sin. Neither of those concepts are what Paul means, but that's what most people think because of various presuppositions. We talked about that last week in Theological Equipping, if you weren't there. Encourage you to go back and to listen to that audio where we talk about the importance of presuppositions for interpreting passages and so forth. Neither of those concepts, though, are what Paul is talking about when he talks about predestination. So, what I want to do for the next few moments is kind of give you a handful of passages. 
that really drive this idea of predestination, this idea of election home. Then I want to give you a summary definition and then address a couple of uh, common objections that we might have to this understanding of predestination. Before we get to specific New Testament passages on this topic of predestination, let's first just consider the Old Testament background. The Old Testament background, which is saturated with the concept of sovereignty, which is saturated with the concept that God is Lord, that God is King, that God is Creator, and along with that, He has certain rights, that He is the potter, and the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. We see that over and over and over again. Think back to Genesis and how out of nowhere, you're reading Genesis chapter 11, and it seems like Genesis 1 through 11, things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And then out of nowhere, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, this moon worshiper from the Chaldeans, God chooses Abraham out of absolutely nothing, and he chooses Isaac rather than Ishmael. And he chooses Jacob rather than Esau. And he chooses Moses rather than all the other Israelites. And he chooses David and Solomon and so forth. We read about God's choice, God's sovereignty all over the pages of the Bible. And we're happy with God making choices. We rejoice in God making choices. But we tend to want to restrict this one, this biggest choice, this biggest decision. We want to keep him at arm's length in that. But the Bible's going to break down this facade that we have of self-empowerment, of control. It's going to constantly confront our sense of autonomy. And it's going to show us this picture of this absolutely sovereign creator God who rules and reigns even over the responses of his creature. So let's look how this plays out in the New Testament. John chapter 6. This is Jesus speaking here. John chapter 6, verse 37 Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Think about that for a second. Think about the implications of what Jesus has just said. Notice he's just said that coming is dependent upon giving, and that all that are given will come. Everyone who is given will come, and all that come will never be cast out. Follow the logic of what Jesus is saying there. If only some are saved, then only some come, which means that only some are given. That's the logic of what Jesus is saying there in John 6. Later on in John 6, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, notice that coming is not only dependent on the Father giving, but also drawing. And those who are given and drawn will endure. They will persevere. Again, your only options are that either all are drawn, in which case all come and all are saved, or only some are drawn and some are saved. Or Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice that believing is the effect of being appointed. God's appointing and saving is not dependent on our belief. It's the ground of our belief. It's the cause 
of our belief. We believe because he chose. He doesn't choose because we believe. We've reversed the cause and the effect. We think that our choice is the cause and God's choice, the effect, but biblically it's reversed. We believe because we're chosen, not the other way around. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse, but then it goes on to say what that purpose is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the chain there that all who are foreknown, which biblically means something more like foreloved, that God loved beforehand, all that are foreknown are predestined, and all who are predestined are called, and all who are called are justified, and all who are justified are glorified. In other words, not all are called, or else all would be justified, and all would be glorified. Or Romans 9, which might be the clearest of them all, but also the hardest of them all. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It's Romans 9, 18. This is the really hard part. Think of predestination, if you will, as a coin, and that coin has two sides. You have a heads and you have a tails. In the same way, predestination has two sides. On one side is election, that is predestination to glory. On the other side, you have what theologians call reprobation, that is uh, predestination to condemnation. That is not what Paul's emphasizing here in this text. In fact, that's not what Paul is going to emphasize throughout the rest of uh, scripture. So we won't deal with that, but it is important that we understand it if we're going to have a working definition of predestination. So let me give you a definition that we've come up with here at Parkway. Predestination is an act of God. Predestination is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved and some people to be condemned, not on account of any foreseen merit or demerit in them or any future decision they would make but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Let me read that again. Predestination is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved and some people to be condemned, not on account of any foreseen merit or demerit in them or any future decision they would make, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That's it. That's what Paul means when he uses the word predestination. And along with that comes a number of uh, objections. As we hear that, there are a number of objections. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 9 says, if you've understood me correctly, as I've talked about this concept of predestination, you will say, and then he gives a couple of objections that we might have. So the fact that we have objections shouldn't lead us away from this doctrine. They should lead us into these doctrines. And we begin to then wrestle with these presuppositions that we have. And we begin to ask the question, why is this distasteful? Why is this unpleasant to me? Why does this seem to make God unkind or cruel? So let me give you the first objection that people have. What about free will? Are you saying that we're just robots? No, I'm not saying that we're just robots. I'm not saying that we don't have free will. I'm saying we need to understand the nature of freedom. We have to define our terms or else we're simply, we're trying to order salmon, and instead we order salmon eggs. We need to define our terms. What does the Bible mean whenever it talks about freedom? So let me ask you a question. Is God free to sin? 
Is God free to sin? Am I free to go climb up on this building and jump off and then float or fly around? Am I free to go jump under uh, some water and breathe there without any sort of apparatus? No, why, why not? Because in some sense, freedom is always bound by our nature. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot change. These things are impossible for him, and yet he is the most free being that has ever existed or will ever exist. Freedom is not the ability to do anything. Freedom is the ability to do that which is in your nature. Freedom is the ability to do that which you desire. But what we need to understand biblically is what we desire before Christ wrecks our heart, before Christ upends our life. What we desire is sin. 100% of the time, that's all we desire, sin. Even our good deeds are done out of sinful motivations. We're free to act according to our nature, but as we'll see in Ephesians 2 when it talks about our death, in Ephesians 4 when it talks about uh, our hearts and minds being darkened, that human nature is marked by this idea of a radical and pervasive depravity. So our free will, if you will, always inclines towards sin. The good news of the gospel is not that you get what you want, but that God changes what we want so that we might have a new nature that desires him. And you can never really grasp election. You can never really grasp predestination. You can never really grasp that these are good and beautiful and lovely until you recognize how not good and beautiful and lovely you are in your sin, in your nature. You will always think, I could have done something. I could have added something to this. We tend to think far too highly of ourselves. That's the first objection. A second objection and kind of default response to this, and it's one that Paul even mentions in Romans 9, is to think of God as being capricious, to think of God as being unkind, but notice God's motivation there in Ephesians 1. The first two words of this sentence, the first two words of this section, it says, in love, in love, he predestined us for adoption. And notice also that predestination is an overflow of his grace, and it's intended to spill over into the praise of his glorious grace, or you could translate that, the praise of the glory of his grace, that in this doctrine, we exalt this idea of grace. The pagan gods, which is the context in which Paul's writing, we talked uh, last week in our intro to Ephesians, uh, how uh, uh, Ephesus is a church that's mired in pagan religions and so forth. It's the, the heart of the worship of uh, Artemis, uh, who was a, a Greek god and so forth. And so this is the context in which Paul's writing. Pagan gods if you read Greek literature, Roman literature, and so forth, they're capricious, they're harmful, they're spiteful. Contrast that with how Paul describes the triune God. He says, in love and by grace and according to the good pleasure of his will, that God is neither dispassionate nor detached. In some sense, you could even say that your understanding of God's love, your understanding of God's grace is dependent on your understanding of what Paul means when he talks about election. It's dependent upon what 
Paul means or what you think Paul means when he talks about predestination. If you will, your understanding of predestination and election becomes a ceiling for you as you think about God's grace, God's mercy, God's love. What do I mean by that? Because if you think that God chose you because of something that you did or were going to do, or something that you believed or were going to believe, there's always a part of you that thinks God chose you because of you. God chose me because of me. I'm somehow better than somebody else. I somehow am more worthy of grace, which is a complete contradiction of terms. Grace means unmerited favor or favor that you're unworthy of. To say that I in any way am worthy of God's grace is a contradiction in its very essence, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Think of it, if you will, like Elijah on Mount Carmel. And Elijah is pouring buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of water upon the altar, making it more and more and more and more difficult for that flame to erupt. That's what we do in the flesh. We don't add any kindling. We don't add any spark to our salvation. We add water. We add stuff that makes salvation more and more and more and more difficult. That's the grace of God that he overcomes our broken wills. Lastly, what of the objection that this is some sort of new doctrine? So let's kind of start at Parkway and kind of move backwards in time from that. This isn't new for Parkway. In fact, Jerry's been preaching and teaching this doctrine for years uh, here. It's not new for Baptists. In fact, if you go back and you read some of the earliest Baptist statements of faith, this is a fundamental doctrine of Baptist uh, theology. Even the great Charles Spurgeon uh, preached this sort of understanding of predestination and election, as did Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, the leading voices, the Great Awakening in the 18th century, and John Calvin and Martin Luther, the leading voices of the Reformation, and St. Augustine, and other church fathers, and on and on. We could go all the way back to Paul, and to Peter, and to John, and to Jesus himself, as we just read. So God's people were predestined. I don't think that you can escape that reality without ignoring a whole lot of the Bible, but to what end? He goes on to say that we were predestined for adoption for adoption to himself. In Roman law, those who were adopted, they received all the legal rights. All the legal rights of the natural born child were given to the adopted child, including the family name and social status, uh, inheritance rights. So our adoption entails our being grafted into relationship with the Father through the Son, such that we become sons or daughters. Let's look in verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul's now moving from kind of one imagery of uh, our relationship Uh, and what he has accomplished in atonement from this one uh, imagery of adoption into this idea of redemption, which uh, kind of connotes uh, slavery imagery. That's what redemption is, to be purchased back uh, from 
slavery, that we've been redeemed, that is bought back from slavery through Christ's blood. So enslaved to what? To sin, to Satan, to death. Each of those are true in some sense. In Titus chapter 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish disobedience, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Again, you get this view of who we are in our association with Adam. Before we're in Christ, we're in Adam. This is who we are. This is a picture of our depravity. Or Hebrews chapter 2, another imagery, uh, another image of slavery is used. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who was the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we're enslaved, and so God has done this work of redemption to purchase us back. Why is there a connection between, between uh, redemption and adoption? Because to be adopted and to be accepted, there must first have something done with our depravity and our debt. That's what has happened. He has redeemed us. He has taken care of our depravity and taken care of our debt. He has paid the debt that we might be accepted and that we might be adopted into relationship with him. And Paul says yet again that this is according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. For some reason, every time I read this, I think of Scrooge McDuck swimming in his sort of uh, vault of gold coins and so forth. Have you ever seen any of those uh, Walt Disney episodes? And, uh, and so I, I think of that, that's the imagery that I have of God just swimming in this treasury, this vault that's absolutely full of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And I was trying to, to, to process the concept of riches and wealth the other day, and I did some calculations, and everybody likes to throw out Bill Gates just because he's the richest man in the world. And I found out that Bill Gates could get every single resident of McKinney $500,000. Sorry, those of you who live in Allen, you're out of luck. Those of you who live in Prosper, you're prosperous already or whatever. Uh, but uh, Bill, uh, or, 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 yeah, Bill Gates could give every single one uh, of the McKinney residents $500,000. Here's what's fascinating to me. He would still have $5 billion left over. Isn't that absurd? Isn't that incomprehensible? That's not incomprehensible. We need to talk. You need to give something to the church. <laughs> that is absolutely and utterly incomprehensible sort of wealth to me. And yet, obviously, he's not going to do that. Bill Gates is not going to give every resident of McKinney $500,000. Why? Because at some point, as expansive as his wealth might be, there is a limit to it. It's finite. There is a number that is associated with it, and it will run out, not in his lifetime, unless he begins to do things like that. But God is infinite in his grace. There is no limit to it. It is inexhaustible. It's not only inestimable, it is absolutely infinite and unending. He's lavish with his riches because they're infinite and inexhaustible and inestimable. Do we believe that as a church? I'll be honest, I oftentimes do not believe that about God. I remake him in my own image. One day I'm super generous, one day I'm super selfish. 
Sometimes it's with money, sometimes it's with time, sometimes it's with energy, whatever it might be. And so I remake God into my own image and I think he must be like me, but he's not like me. That's the point. He is lavish with the riches of his grace and he loves to lavish grace on his adopted children. And so in, the, in addition to the grace of choosing and adopting and redeeming, he adds the grace of revelation. It says, in all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. I love a good mystery. Sherlock Holmes and CSI and all those kinds of things, I love those. When I was a kid, I watched Magnum P.I. and Simon and Simon and even Murder, She Wrote, Jessica Fletcher. I love a good sort of uh, mystery I love trying to figure out who did it along as, kind of as the narrative progressive. I love to try to figure out, can I figure out, am I a good detective and figure out who did uh, this? But when uh, the Bible talks about mysteries, it uses it in a different uh, way than I might think of a mystery. The Greek word there is mysterion. That's where we get the word mystery. And it's used to refer to things that were previously hidden, previously covered, but have now been revealed. It's kind of like those uh, TV shows that shows you uh, who did it uh, at the very beginning of the episode and then begins to go back and put uh, piece it all together. That's how biblical mysteries are. Something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. So God's mystery has now been revealed. And what is this mystery? The will of God, according to the text. And what is this will? The exaltation, the supremacy of his son, Christ himself. Jesus is the mystery. He's the answer to the riddles that the rest of the book is going to present. The separation between God and man, the separation between Jew and Gentile, the enigma of death and suffering and Satan and sin. And so in God's grace and according to his wisdom, this universe is moving toward an end, the summing of all things up in Jesus, that Jesus would be supreme over all things, there's coming a day when all things will be summed up under the authority of Christ, when all of our enemies will be submitted to Christ's reign and rule never to afflict us any longer, which leads us back to where we began with the idea of praise. Blessed be our Father for all these blessings that he showers upon us. Before we close, I, I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of go back because of the centrality of predestination in this text and because of the, uh, the centrality and, and, and probably the, uh, the emphasis in our culture upon a misunderstanding of this and the natural response that we might have to it to give a little bit of clarification in the summary. So I wanted to do a little bit of an uh, image for us of what election is like. Remember, election is the, uh, the predestining unto glory that God does of his people. So imagine, if you will, God the Father sends his Son into the world as Lord and as Savior. And Jesus comes into the world, and before he dies for our sins, he stands and he says something like this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we hear that, we say, yes. And yet, the Bible describes us hearing that, that message, if we'll only come, if we'll only repent, if we'll only believe, if we'll only surrender, 
we will be saved. And the Bible says that we're blinded, so we can't see that he has open arms toward us. And the Bible says that we're deaf, so we can't even hear him say, come to me. And our minds and hearts are inclined to view him with apathy, indifference, or even outright antagonism. That's the language of John chapter 3, that we hate the light. We think of them, him and we hate him. And furthermore, as we'll see in a few weeks, we're dead. And so he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and none of us move. None of us come, not even one. Every one of us chooses our sin, our current state, our nature, our association with Adam over Jesus. Every one of us. Apart from election, that would be it. 100% of mankind would be damned. 100% of mankind would be condemned. And yet, in God's grace, he has determined to not damn all of mankind, but to save a remnant. And so for those that the Bible calls the elect, this remnant, God causes something called regeneration. He causes this spiritual reality that is being born again in fulfillment of Old Testament hope and anticipation. He takes a heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And now that heart of flesh finds Jesus lovely. And he removes the scales from our eyes and those eyes then see him. And he heals our deafness and he raises us from spiritual deadness so that we might come to him. That's election. That's what election is, that all are so wicked in our sin that we would never choose him apart from his grace, but that he is so gracious and loving that he has chosen some for the display of his splendor and glory. Now, I know in a room like this, some of us already believe this. Some of us find this to be beautiful and good. Some of this, this is just kind of a, a helpful reminder of what we already know of God's grace and mercy that but for the grace of God, we would all be mired in indifference and indignation at God and separated from all that is good. But for a number of us as well, this is potentially new and potentially even highly disturbing and maybe even offensive. If that's you, I just want to encourage you in three ways as we close. First, I want to encourage you to consider what the Scripture is actually saying and to wrestle with your own assumptions and presuppositions. Wrestle with your concerns and frustrations. In other words, doubt your doubts. If you hear me and you say, I doubt that's what it means, doubt yourself. At least start there. The worst that happens is that you prove your doubts to be correct, but you begin there. You doubt your presuppositions. You doubt your doubts. Remember that we naturally read the Bible with assumptions. We naturally read the Bible with certain biases and so forth. And maybe, just maybe, that's what's obscuring your ability to embrace what we've just talked about. My second encouragement to you is to stick around. This letter is intended to be read as one exhortation. So we're breaking this up over six months. Paul is intending for the church in Ephesus to read this uh, in one sitting, basically. And so let me encourage you. There are things that Paul will talk about in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, and so forth that are going to be helpful for us that build upon this sort of idea. So allow Paul to continue to explain what's going on here and to soothe some of those objections. 
And my third encouragement to you is to come and talk to us. Any of our staff, any of our elders would love to sit down over a meal or coffee or whatever it might be to chat with you, to recommend resources. You can send us an email if you don't want to talk in person. Whatever it might be, we want to help you. I got saved at 23. I began to read the Bible for the first time in my life. I got to the book of Romans, and I read this word, predestined, and I had no idea what it meant. It wasn't in a whole lot of my college business courses and so forth. I had no idea what this word meant, so I looked it up in a dictionary, and I thought, it can't mean that. And so I uh, uh, emailed a number of uh, pastors, pastors from uh, uh, various churches that I had attended or guys that I knew or whatever it might be, and said, hey, help me with this. What is what in the world does this word mean? And I got two responses. The first one was, I don't care. I really don't care what it means, which infuriated me, right? How can you not care about what God has said? How in the world can someone not care about what God means here, especially a pastor? Let me tell you this, you will never, ever hear anyone in leadership at Parkway say, I don't care what the Bible says about something. I also got a few I don't knows. There's a whole lot about the Bible that I would say I don't know. But that frustrated me as well because I began to see as I read that this was not something that was tertiary. This was not something that was kind of on the fringes. This relates to salvation. This relates to the glory of God. This relates to my sin, my understanding of who I am and who God is and how he saved me and all of these sorts of things. These are not things like the, the exact timing of the end times or something, which we can agree to disagree on, these are central sort of doctrines. So let me tell you, not only do we care, but I think we know. I think there are certain things that the Lord has revealed to us that we have the opportunity for us to know, and we're more than willing to walk with you through your questions, comments, and concerns. You aren't going to be shunned. You aren't going to be ridiculed. You're not going to be a nuisance to us if you continue to pester us. I'm asking you, pester us with your questions. Let us shepherd you through those questions and comments and concerns that you might have because there is freedom and joy in this doctrine. Let me end with this imagery. Wrestling with this topic is kind of like standing on a beach. You're standing on a beach and you want to get out into the ocean. You have a kayak, right? The first couple hundred yards, wherever the breakers are, the first couple hundred yards are going to be strenuous and exhausting and there's going to be a point in time in which you say it wasn't worth it. But if you can simply get past the breakers, if you can simply get past the currents, and get into the serenity of the sea, you will see beauty upon beauty upon beauty. That's what this conversation is like. If you will do the hard work of wrestling through what Paul has said here, I think there is beauty to be found, but it might be hard up front. Or to go back to the opening illustration, there is a plate in front of you, there's some chopsticks, there's some soy sauce, there's a little piece of sushi, will you give it a try? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and showing steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love you and keep your commands. So I'm grateful for 
your deep love for us, Lord. I'm grateful that you would be willing to overcome our unwillingness to come to you. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to not only believe these things, Lord, begrudgingly, but that we might behold these things as being beautiful and true and right and glorious and good, and that will only come by the work of your Spirit. So would you grant his grace to minister to us in our need? We pray these things because you are a good Father. You give good gifts to your children, and you've predestined us for adoption. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.